Hi, I'm Jenny Detweiler, and you're listening to PRN, Pause, Renew, Next, a podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcasting app, and share it with your friends. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to PRN, Pause, Renew, Next, the podcast. I'm Jenny, and in today's podcast episode, you'll hear a conversation that I was privileged to have with a pretty special lady, Jess Ronnie. Jess has many titles she could put behind her name. She started a nonprofit. She's a wife, a mother of eight children, one of whom has profound needs. And you'll hear quite a bit about that today in this podcast episode. She also is an author. She has a blog that you can find at JessPlusTheMess.com, and she's also the author of a memoir, Sunlight Burning at Midnight. Now, it was my honor to actually get to read this book before the podcast interview, and I really gleaned a lot from it, and it was really a joy to get to process it with her in this conversation. So with that, I think we'll jump into the podcast episode. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I guess the the short version is I'm Jess Ronnie, otherwise known as Jess Plus Mess. I'm an author of my memoir, Sunlight Burning at Midnight, a speaker and mom of eight and a nonprofit founder. So I guess that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> and a wife. Yep. Yeah. So I got the privilege of reading your book, and I think I already told you this, but it's really neat, and I don't think it's something that most people get to do to read a book and then go process it with the author. So I'm thankful to get to do this. I love on this podcast to talk about faith stories, and yours is pretty incredible, devastating and hopeful. Um, would you want to share some of your journey with us? Sure. Um, I guess I'll just start from the beginning. Um In 2004, I went to what I thought was a routine ultrasound appointment for my second child with my husband, Jason. Uh, We had a one-year-old at the time, Caleb, and we knew we wanted to have our kids pretty close together. So um, we were excited to find out that we were pregnant quickly after he was born. And I went to um, just what I thought was going to be a normal ultrasound appointment, Um, And while I was lying upon the table, I noticed that the nurse wouldn't really look at me and um, just didn't, was naive enough, you know, having had a completely healthy child the first time around to just think that she was off or, you know, it was her issue. And she said, "Um, I'll be right back. I have to go get the doctor. And the doctor came in and just dove into his news. He said, um, your child suffered a stroke in utero. There's very little hope. Uh, we would suggest termination and trying again, you're young and healthy. You shouldn't have any problems getting pregnant. And I just remember kind of stumbling out of that doctor's appointment, finding my car, uh, pulling over to a payphone. At the time we didn't have our, our cell phones. Um, that'll age me a little bit, but pulling over to a payphone and calling my husband, Jason, who had stayed back home with our son, Caleb and, um, explaining the news to him. And he said, are you okay to drive? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, I'll start to pray. 
And that's what I walked in on when I got back to our home was Jason on his knees praying for me, uh, my safety, driving back home, and also praying for our unborn child. And this began a couple of intense months of wrestling with my faith and figuring out um, whether I truly um, had the capacity to put my complete trust and faith in God. And um, we moved forward by choosing life for that child. Um, abortion was never an option in our minds. If this child, we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl, was going to live, then we had faith that God would provide us what we needed to raise him or her. And if not, then we just, we had faith that um, his or her life would be in heaven with uh, the eternal father. So um, this, this four month period was me journaling and just on my knees, begging God for my child and literally going into the throne room of heaven and begging for a miracle Right. When everything in me said that or whenever when everything in the world told me that a miracle wasn't possible. And we made it to August, August 2004. Um, and they scheduled a C-section date for August 12. And we were just kind of amazed that we had come this far, honestly, because the doctor just kept saying this baby will spontaneously abort at some point. And he never did. Uh, so. August 12th came, Jason and I walked into the hospital. Um, I had a C-section and Lucas, my son was lifted from my belly and just started crying with life. And I just started weeping. I was shocked and amazed that my baby was alive, but then terrified in the next breath that something was going to happen because we had also been told through the whole journey, okay, so you might give birth, but that baby might die hours or days after you give birth to him. And the only thing that seemed off about him was he had a huge head. Um, His head was the size of a two-year-old's at birth due to all the cerebral spinal fluid buildup in his brain. So three days post-birth, he had a surgery um, and they placed a shunt in his head and Two weeks later, they discharged us. (laughs) We were like, okay, well, that's kind of a leap to go from you're going to have a dead baby to, okay, yeah, he's doing really well and you're free to go home. Right. So we went home really having no idea even what that was going to entail. And the next couple of years with him was really difficult just because of his profound needs. He didn't um, nurse very well. He never slept. I never slept because I was terrified due to his head size that he would suffocate in the middle of the night. Uh, because if he did somehow flip, he could not lift his head back up. So I just sat there most nights staring at him and got very little sleep for the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. One of the things I loved in your book is how you actually put a lot of your journal entries in the book. Mm-hmm. So the reader can follow along with kind of where your faith progression was. And so um, I know that there was a lot more to your ups and downs than what you just shared in that. So I would definitely tell people to go read your book if they want the full story for sure. So transitioning at that point, you had how many kids? Um, two kids. And then, like I said, we wanted to add to our family pretty quickly. We sort of had this dream of four children, my perfect life. Um, was three boys and a girl. 
So a couple of years after Lucas was born and started to sleep a little bit better and was progressing, we decided to go ahead and try for a third child. And um, we got pregnant pretty quickly with, with our daughter and gave birth to her in February 2007. And after giving birth to her, my husband Jason started having all of these health problems and we were going to specialists constantly and they just kept saying to him, well, you have type one diabetes, which was really strange because he was a personal trainer, a gym owner and a tennis professional, like the epitome of health and fitness. Right. And they just kept saying to him, you have to get your diabetes under control. And it came on so out of the blue too. He didn't like have type one diabetes all growing up, or it was just like one specialist. This is what you have. You need to get it under control. And his health problems just continued to progress. He had vision loss, uh, disorientation, was losing weight like crazy, and just could not get to the bottom of what was going on. So summer 2007, um, at this point, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and I believe a six or seven month old baby, Mabel, um, our daughter. And I said to Jason one night, are you feeling okay? Because I want to run across town to my dad's house. I have to pick up something. And he had good days and bad days. And he, he was like, no, I'm feeling good. Go ahead. And my dad's house was only 20, 30 minutes away. So it wasn't going to be a long trip or anything. So I said, okay, well, I'll be back as quick as I can. Got in the car, drove off, pulled into my dad's driveway and my phone rang and I picked it up. And it was Jason. He said, Jess, call, call 911. Click. The phone went dead. And I was like, oh, crap. What is going on? Just frantic. That's terrifying. My dad's house. Yeah. Like, hearts racing. Tears are streaming down my face. I said, Dad, Jason just called. Um, he told me to call 911. We got to get back home immediately. So in my mind, as we're rushing back home, I'm thinking, you know, I left these three kids in his care. Um, Caleb is the only capable one at four years old. Like there's a baby in his care. There's my son, Lucas with profound special needs. Like, are they okay? On top of, is my husband okay? Mm -hmm. So we pull into my driveway at home and there's ambulances and cops and, um, rush inside and a paramedic pulls me aside and he says, your husband had a seizure, but before seizing, he had enough sense to put a movie in for Caleb put Lucas in his exorciser and put baby Mabel in her bouncy seat before he seized until he passed out. So he like felt wow. it coming on and secured everything, which was so like him, like yeah. get everything in order. Um, so Jason was laid out on a stretcher, um, just in an immense amount of pain, just grabbing his head, like moaning, um, something in his head was just killing him. So the, the ambulance rushed him to the hospital. Um, and honestly, the next or this night is very blurry to me. All I really remember is sitting in the hospital um, and being like obsessed about baby Mabel, who is going to nurse Mabel. And my sister sitting beside me and she's like, Jess, it'll be OK. We'll figure it out. You know, somebody will feed Mabel. And I was like, but she's still like almost exclusively nursing and somebody needs to feed her and the doctor coming in and turning to me and saying, we're going to run an MRI just to rule out the possibility of a brain tumor with your husband. 
And that's like, it all clicked. And I just knew immediately that's what it was. He had a brain tumor, like all of the months of disorientation and vision loss and weight loss. And even the type one diabetes had been a result of a brain tumor. And they ran an MRI and discovered that he had a baseball sized brain tumor in his head. Um, and he was prepped for immediate surgery. They removed that tumor and then said to us, um, well, we have to get the biopsy results and that will determine our next course of action. So I don't remember exactly when those came. I'm sure the next day or something. And we received those results and they said, well, it's only a grade two, which means it wasn't officially cancer at that point. And they said, you know, you have the option just to watch and wait. And they said, uh, sometimes, you know, these tumors take 20 years to return. Um, be prepared. They almost always return, but sometimes they you know, return with a vengeance within a year or so. And we just thought, um, you know, God had tested us enough between Lucas and Jason and we were going to be left alone for a while. And so right. we just chose to watch and wait. So you had three little kids under the age of what at that point? Four. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember a whole lot. Um, but yeah, so we just continued with life. He honestly uh, got out of the hospital and had a new lease on life. I mean, you can imagine a baseball-sized brain tumor is taken out of your head after probably a, a really long time of dealing with it right. and the after effects of something like that in your body. And um, he just got back to work, like full of energy. And um, in the process, we wound up pregnant again. <laughs> So <laughs> he was feeling real good. Um, that was not a planned pregnancy. Um, but like I had said to you in the beginning, I kind of had my dream life of three boys and a girl. And we constantly kind of vacillated between the idea of having another child or, you know, understanding that we had three children, one with profound needs and Jason had had cancer. Um, so we were not committed to that idea. But if we had waited for our perfect timing, uh, the possibility to even have a fourth child would have been completely gone. So God knew what he was doing. Um, I ended up pregnant in, when is this, 2009? That sounds about right. And um, Jason is having some issues again. His vision is going again, um, weight loss again. So during this whole process of about a year and a half, he has to have these quarterly MRI appointments just to see what's going on in his brain. Um, and he left work one day at lunch, uh, drove himself down to the hospital to have his quarterly MRI. And I got a call around noon, uh, just the tumor's back. I have to check myself into ER immediately. And I was like, ugh. So at this point what do I have? I don't even know a six year old, a four year old, a two year old, and I'm pregnant with another baby on the way. And also during this whole process, Lucas has been screaming like uncontrollably. We're bringing him to a specialist who cannot figure out what's going on with him. They think it might just be like a communication issue because he's nonverbal. Um, 
And finally, they decide to do an MRI on him where it's discovered after months that he has Chiari malformation and a tethered spinal cord, which in layman's term means that his spinal cord was growing into his brain, causing like extreme pain. Wow. So this is all June 2009. Um, So Lucas has his surgery. And he is a new kid after this. Um, Jason has, well, I should back up here. I have my 20-week ultrasound appointment in this time period, which is like super nerve-wracking for me after what happened with Lucas. That's the first thing that occurs. So I go to this appointment and everything looks good. Praise the Lord. Um, That's an answer to prayer. And then Lucas has his brain surgery. And that goes well and the pain subsides. And then two weeks after that is when Jason had his follow-up MRI appointment and calls me with the news that the brain tumor is back and he has to check himself into um, ER immediately. So all of this occurs within like a four-week time frame. So Lucas thankfully has recovered enough (laughs) so that other people can help out with him at this point because Jason's about to undergo another surgery. He undergoes this surgery and they remove another baseball sized brain tumor. And we're again in the process of determining what the biopsy results are. Um, And I just remember sitting with his mom beside him in his hospital room as we waited for these results. The doctor came walking in and he just dove right into the news. He said, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but the biopsy results confirmed a grade four glioblastoma. And at this point, I had done enough research on brain cancer to understand that that was a death sentence and meant a life expectancy of about 14 months. So yeah, I'm now like, what am I? Six months pregnant. And we, it was suggested that he begin treatments immediately. So he started radiation only a few weeks after that surgery along with chemo. Um, and that's, that's how our life pretty much looked for the next year. Not even, yeah, about 14 months, um, was chemo treatments, radiation, finding somebody to help with the kids so I could bring Jason. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering, like while you're talking, I'm thinking there is no way on God's green earth that you could do all that by yourself. Did you have people helping? Oh yeah. An army, um, an army. And uh, what I failed to mention too, was that I gave birth that September. So Jason started his treatments in August and then we had our fourth child, Joshua in September. And it makes me even, it chokes me up to think about like Jason was there while I was having Josh and the nurses would come in and see his bald head and they'd say, you know, Oh, what do you, what have you got going on? He'd say, Oh, I've stage four brain cancer, but I'll be fine. Um, God's going to heal me. And you would see these nurses walk out of our room, just tears streaming down their faces because Aww. they understood Here's a dad with four young children under six years old, and he his wife just gave birth to another baby, and he's going to die. Like, they understood what we didn't quite understand yet. But yeah, in answer to your question, an army, my church, 
um, the school. I did not cook for probably a year and a half. Um, <laughs> wow. It, like it got to the point almost where it was like, no more casseroles, please. <laughs> but uh. every day I'd go to the mailbox and there would be money from strangers. Uh, people mowed my lawn. They cleaned my house. They did my laundry. They did my yard work. They pulled the weeds out of my garden. Like I have a whole blog post on what to do and you have no idea what to say or do um, because we got it all. We got the whole range of everything that you could possibly help with. And all, you know, even, even Jason's appointments, he had weekly chemo and radiation and people would bring him to his appointments or people would come watch my kids so I could bring him. Um, my biggest struggle during those days was trying to determine where my place was, feeling like this constant tension between wanting to be home with my kids, but yet knowing that my husband also required me and having a newborn baby. And it was just constant juggling, right? Um, trying to figure out where I had to be or where I should be or. And wherever you were, there was somebody who didn't have you. Right. There was guilt attached. And Honestly, I often opted to be with the kids to give them some stability. And I would let other people bring Jason to his appointments that felt like the best scenario at that time. And maybe that had to do with like, cause I was nursing again and Luke's profound needs. A lot of people weren't real comfortable with him, but right. yeah, it was just always a juggling act trying to figure out where I should be and what was appropriate, and then guilt attached to whatever I chose. So that's how we continued life for the next 14 months. And Jason even continued working part-time throughout most of this. Uh, he would get jobs subbing at local schools, and he did some part-time personal training. And honestly, he did his personal training until August 2010, um, the beginning of the month, his boss called me up and just said, you know, he can't even hardly see anymore and he gets really disoriented. I think we need to call it. And as she's crying as she's telling me this, because that was like the one thing that got him out of bed Yeah, you know, was to go train that one client or those two clients and that and his family outside of that, he just laid in bed. So we called it on that. And then after that, he just did not really get out of bed anymore. And I brought him to his oncology appointment and the oncologist had tears in his eyes. He said, he's not doing good. He had lost so much weight, just freezing cold all the time, just did not look good. And he said, we have some hard choices to make. So that evening he called me up and we decided to pursue hospice care. And Jason had always made me promise that I would take care of him at home and he wouldn't have to go to a hospice facility. And so that's what we started. And it was just completely surreal, surreal to have people in and out of my house all the time, uh, tending to his basic needs and trying to maintain some sort of stability for four kids. And long story short, um, Jason passed away August 24, 2010, almost 14 months exactly um, to what they say the life expectancy is for his type of cancer. Wow. You named your book Sunlight Burning at Midnight. Do you want to share the story about how you came up with that title? 
Yeah, I was on my way to Jason's mom's house one night uh, in the summer of 2010, a couple of months before Jason died. And I had all four kids and my car was complete chaos between three of them, young children, um, hollering and screaming and crying. And Jason had opted to stay back home because he wasn't feeling well and he just wanted to sleep. And this song came on the radio uh, by Francesca Battistelli, like sunlight burning at midnight. And I just thought, what a ridiculous concept, sunlight burning at midnight. Like, that's not even something that can happen, the sunlight burning at the midnight hour. And I just thought about my own life, like to have the sun of hope again, in my life felt so out of reach and so ridiculous. Like it would take a miracle for something like that to occur, just like it would take a miracle for the sun to burn at the midnight hour. And it just kind of clicked all in that moment that God was capable of that miracle. And I had no idea how or when or where, but I had to hold on to faith that he was God and I was not. And I just had to trust his path for my life. So that's the story behind that song. I actually looked it up today so I could listen to it. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. That's not yeah, the that's a good song. either. It's um, beautiful, beautiful, I think. Yeah, because I, cl- I wrote in that and then beautiful, beautiful came up. So Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that just kind of became my, my marching song for the next couple of months. Which leads me into my next question. How do you think in the midst of all the yuck, because it seemed like God gave you way more than you could bear multiple times in a row there. How did you maintain hope and faith? Um, you know, I was a lot better at it during my pregnancy with Luke than I was with Jason's cancer. Um, with Jason's cancer, I was really angry. And I, I do believe God can handle our anger. Um, yeah. And God and I wrestled a lot <laughs> during that period. With Lucas and that pregnancy, I really drew into the shepherd is how I like to explain it. Um, Psalm 23 really drew into his grace and mercy and love and comfort and peace and by that, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the Bible. Um, I spent a lot of time in prayer. I spent a lot of time listening to worship music and just really dwelling in his presence. Like he was a comforter. Yes, he was a comforter and I allowed him to comfort me. I didn't do that as much during Jason's three year cancer journey. And part of that, I think, was having four children. Um, (laughs) Like being completely overwhelmed. Um, And I never lost my faith. But with Jason, it was more of holding on for dear life and saying at the end of every day or every week, you are God and I am not here and flinging it at him. Yeah. Yeah. Like the leaning into the peace that he could have offered. Um, So I don't, I don't think like I, abandoned my faith or he wasn't present. He was present, but I think I could have been comforted and had more peace had I leaned into him more during that time period. Well, you know, as a counselor, anger is a part of grief. 
And anger tends to give us a little more energy. And you probably needed energy right about that time. In some weird way, I think I understood that. Mm -hmm. Um, If I was going to be sad and depressed, I would go to bed and never get up just like my Mm -hmm. husband. But somebody had to get up and take care of the kids and him. So anger fueled me during that period. Yeah. So I wrote down a couple quotes I really loved from your book. And one of them is about this exact thing. You said, I've learned that it is okay to question. It's okay to question life. It's okay to question God. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't feel that way and get to a place that they're perplexed, confused about what it is that God is up to and don't feel permission to ask questions. What do you think got to the point that you felt you could do that? Um, Use the word wrestling. Are you are you a wrestler by nature? Oh, yeah. God and I have been (laughs) wrestling lately again a lot. Um, (laughs) um, Our life has been very difficult even the past couple of months. And I don't know. I guess I didn't know that you couldn't question God. I feel like the examples in the Bible, there are a lot of people who cry out to God and question Uh David, um, um, Jacob. Like, I don't. I think God can handle anything we throw at him. And I'm sorry, what was your question? <laughs> I'm trying to zone in I on what... You like what got you to the point of faith that you felt you could do that. And by the way, I, I am a wrestler too. I'm all about okay. that. I think it's really healthy to be able to ask questions. Uh, I just have sat with many people over the years who didn't feel like they had the opportunity to do that or that they had okay. that inside of themselves. Or was that a wrong thing to okay. do? So... I think if your foundation is secure and what I always come back to, I think I've said this a couple of times, even while talking to you is he is God and I am not like yeah. to be the name of the Lord. That's what Job comes to. Job even wrestles and questions God through all of his trials and turmoils. And it's not abandoning your faith. It's still having that foundation, but saying, I don't understand this. Why do you, why are you putting me through so much? And, but now having gone through so much, at this stage of my life, at 42 years old, I know he will be faithful. It might not be exactly how I want in the moment, but what I've learned is his faithfulness and his path has always surpassed all of my expectations. So I know this to be true. So I've learned to trust it. Yeah, that's a good word. You also said, I come to the realization that God requires obedience regardless of the outcome of our trials. And faith is not spending every moment reading the Bible, praying, and chanting faith-based words to procure a specific outcome. There is a season for these actions, and there's a season for being in the hands and feet of Christ as well. Getting in the muck of life and feeling it, living it, being in the moments. So I'm just throwing your own words back at you. It may have been a while since you wrote those words. But can you talk a little bit about the progression of your faith that led you to that point? Because I know in your beginning journal entries, it is a lot more like, I need to mm-hmm. do the things that God will, so God will heal this baby. Speak it and believe it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. And my whole thought process, even on that has changed a lot. Um, I had a lot of guilt because... I wasn't, after Lucas was born, I understood that I wouldn't be able to immerse myself um, in the Bible and in prayer and in praise and worship music. Like 
I was prior to him being born. And I remember chatting with the Lord about this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to give you all of me like that after Lucas is born and feeling this peace in my heart about no, but you will worship me through obedience by raising this child with profound special needs who I am giving you. And as he tacked on, you know, more kids in my life and all of Jason's struggles, it was kind of a slow process of understanding that obedience is worship, just like, you know, reading the Bible and praying. And if he gives you something in your life, it's our job to be obedient and do the hard and holy work that it requires of raising that child or you know, walking beside your husband going through a terminal diagnosis. That is the holiest form of worship in my mind is coming alongside people and being the hands and feet of Christ. That's what he called us to do. I love that a lot. Do you want to share about where you are now and what happened? Yeah, that's the fun part. So a couple of months after Jason died, Halloween night, I decided that I was going to show all of the Facebook world that I was doing just fine. Um, <laughs> I was going to put on a brave face. And I took all four of my kids out trick-or-treating. And I look back on these pictures even. You can just see the bags under my eyes. But <laughs> I was really skinny because I was grieving. <laughs> so it was like, um, just going to show the world that I'm doing good. And... So we went out trick-or-treating, brought the kids home, put them all to bed, um, was exhausted, and hopped on Facebook to post pictures and decided to check my blog, which had sort of updated the masses during Jason's whole journey with cancer, and um, noticed there was a comment from a woman in Pennsylvania. She just wrote, I have no idea why I'm asking you to do this, but there's the widower in Oklahoma, who lost his wife to brain cancer four days after Jason died. He has three young children, and he's not doing very well. I think you could be a source of encouragement to him. So I went to go look for his blog and couldn't find it and just let it be that for the for the evening and went to bed and woke up the next day and thought, I'll just reach out to her and see if she has more specifics on his blog. And so she directed me as to where it was, and I went and checked it out and just noticed that there was this young widower who was my age um, and just read his story and left a little comment just saying, hey, um, you know, my husband died four days before your wife did. I'm so sorry. If you ever want to talk, I'm here. And that led to comments and emails and phone calls and (laughs) it all went pretty quickly. We obviously bonded over our experiences and we spent a lot of time getting to know each other over the next month and a half or so and ended up meeting in December um, that year. So 2010, we met in Savannah, Georgia and it was love at first sight and we were married less than a year later and we adopted each other's kids in 2013 and then decided that we wanted to start our own life somewhere on completely neutral territory. We moved out to the middle of nowhere in rural Tennessee. Is that where you are now? 
No. In Tennessee? <laughs> we stayed there for seven years. A lot of good things happened out there. Um, I wrote my book. We started our nonprofit. We had a baby together. And then as Lucas's needs continued um, to grow and there was nothing, we were very, very rural. The nearest mall was an hour and a half away. Oh, yeah, that um, is rural. Yeah, it was very rural. Um, we just decided that it was getting too difficult with eight kids, including Lucas, who was 13 and just needing a lot more support and just resources for him. So about a year and a half ago, we moved towards Nashville. Okay. Where we are now right outside of Nashville. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much you want to talk about this and I'll let you go into depth if you want to or not, if you don't want to, but I know following you on Instagram, your son has just had another round in the hospital and been in recovery again. So I know that the story didn't end, like it's still going in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what the Lord is teaching you now or what encouragement you would have for somebody else who is going through hard things or has a child with profound needs. There's a lot there. Um, yeah, there is. <laughs> me, um, so Lucas, who was completely healthy for 14 years, had an infection in, in his shunt this past December. And we know it was a huge blessing to have a child who had like, who was almost completely healthy in terms of his shunt for 14 years. Um, and we look back now even and see God's hand in all of this, because had we stayed in rural Tennessee and this occurred, um, the hospital was two and a half hours away. I have no idea how we would have managed that with his stay in ICU, which was almost a month and our seven other kids out in the middle of nowhere, because we have had a really difficult time with community. And we did in rural Tennessee because we were so far from everything and everyone. Mm -hmm. And that was part of our desire to move towards Nashville. And the other side of that is having a 15 year old son with profound special needs makes you pretty isolated to begin with because it's difficult to bring him places due to his sensory issues. He can walk with assistance. Uh, he's primarily nonverbal. He's incontinent. So that makes it hard to participate in things. Right. And the South honestly isn't great with resources for the special needs community either. Um, we're learning that. So all of this to say that what the Lord is teaching me is that we have a desperate need for community and surrounding ourselves with people who care about us. And I'm not sure what that looks like in the future, but I, seven years after stepping away from the only life I ever knew in Michigan, I now know more than ever that community is the sustaining force that you need as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, you need to surround yourself with people who care about you and who will have your back and who will help you. Because when Lucas was in ICU for four weeks, we pretty much felt like we were an island. And between um, our teenagers helping to hold down the fort, and it was just really difficult and kind right. of depressing. Um, 
how isolated we felt and exhausted. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's part of our whole faith journey, I think, is saying, okay, if we need to move to get good, some really good resources for Luke as he ages, then we might have to look at that. Or even if it's a move um, closer to friends and family, we might have to look at that too, because we really need community. Mm-hmm. So that's what all of, all of my lessons lately have been circling back to that word community. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. So in every podcast, I ask my guests a couple of questions. So <laughs> here's the first one. Okay. Who is somebody in your life that inspires you? I have a few people who really inspire me. Um, and it's they're just simple people, honestly. My kids inspire me. Their resilience, all seven of them. I mean, I have eight children, but seven of them have lost a parent. And the way they have yeah. chosen to rise above that pain and help others. And like I was saying, when, when Luke was in ICU for a month, it was my teenagers who held down the fort at home, uh, cooking and cleaning and laundry and watching their younger sister. And it's, it's amazing to me, their spirit and, um, you know, and just other people like my best friend, who's a single mom of four kids because of some bad choices her husband made. And she gets up every day and just does it over and over and over again without a partner. And I'm just amazed at her resilience and ability to continue to have faith and just do it and continue to live. And through her exhaustion, I just, I'm really impressed because I know, you know, we have a lot going on too. We have eight kids. Um, but I have a partner to come alongside me and um, communicate those struggles with. And so it's just people like just normal people that I'm amazed at. I just think, gosh, you're really doing a good job. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and also, do you have a favorite scripture either that goes along with your story or just that <laughs> you just really like? Lately, it's been Isaiah 35, 8. And I'm going to have to paraphrase a little bit because I don't I don't have it in front of me and I don't have it memorized. But it's just this promise of a highway of holiness for those who put their faith in the Lord and no destruction shall befall them. The enemy shall not overtake them. And I just imagine this highway where if we're faithful and obedient, we just continue walking step by step and the Lord will protect us. That's what's getting me through right now. Yeah, I really love that. It's a good picture. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Did you have anything else you wanted to say that I didn't give you a chance to? I don't think so. It's just a very condensed version of a very long story. And I just appreciate you allowing me to share it. Well, it's been, definitely been my joy. So uh, listeners, if you want to hear more, because there definitely is a lot more than she could share in this amount of time on a podcast, you definitely should go get her book, Sunlight Burning at Midnight. And I'll put the link to that in my show notes for sure. So thank awesome. you. Well, thank you. Thanks again to Jess for being on this podcast episode. I really enjoyed connecting with you. It was really fun to talk to you and I appreciate your time. Friends, if you want to know more about Jess and what she's up to, you can find her at her website, JessPlusTheMess.com, 
where you can read her blog, find out more about her book, and speaking engagement she's a part of. I also really enjoy following her on Instagram. She's real and honest, and you can kind of keep track of what's going on with her family if you want to pray for them. You can also find Pause Renew Next on any of the platforms as well. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and you can find the podcast at almost any podcasting app or on our website, pauserenewnext.com. If you enjoy what you hear, you can also follow the blog, which follows a kind of different format, but also has the Pause Renew Next theme. And you can find that as well at the website, pauserenewnext.com. Well, friends, that's all for today's podcast episode. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN, Pause Renew Next, the podcast. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Jesus.